Please turn this morning to 1 Thessalonians, as we'll be finishing up chapter 1 this morning, looking at verses 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. As far as the reading of God's Word. Now, we've all heard about conversion stories, right? Conversion stories. Those stories about how someone has come to faith in Christ. And some can be quite impressive by human standards, I think. Perhaps we've heard of someone who grew up with no parents. They were in the foster system, maybe. By their teenage years, they're living on the street. Maybe they become a criminal, spend time in jail. Yet one day as they're walking, they they pass by a church and they're, they're curious. And so they walk inside the church and they hear the Gospel preached. And boom, right then and there, they are converted. They forsake the life of sin and they live a life to God. But then also, we may have heard others that seem less grand. Perhaps someone tells us of their conversion. They say, well, I was a pretty good kid. I grew up in a Christian home and I was uh, I got good grades in school and I listened to mom and dad. I never really got in trouble. And in fact, there's really never a time I can think back to which I wasn't a believer. But regardless, whether your story is an elaborate story of conversion or something, that, we, that seems rather simple, right? what has occurred in all of them, in all true conversion, is exactly the same. And this is what Paul is going to point out to us this morning in verses 9 and 10. As Paul himself, a true convert, knows what conversion looks like and what it entails. As Paul was one of those who had a rather Tremendous and splendid conversion story, doesn't he? Right? He has one unlike any other. So much so that it was turned into a, a motion picture. Right? Who of us can say that of ours? Right? Although, brothers and sisters, what we ought to see, whether you have this elaborate and grand conversion story, or even if it's something that seems rather simple, as we should see each and every conversion as something glorious, shouldn't we? Because each and every conversion demonstrates the power and the mercy of God displayed in that supernatural work of bringing that sinner to Christ. Right? And so whether your story is a tearjerker or not, right? we should find every conversion glorious for what is more glorious than raising the dead to life. And for each and every one of us, if we believe this is exactly what God has done for us, and what is more breathtaking than that? And this is the conversion we are told today 
that has taken place among many of the saints in Thessalonica. As Paul tells them that he, Timothy and Silvanus, were hearing from people in these other parts of the cities and regions who heard and who, uh, as we read last week in verse 8, where the word sounded forth, where it echoed forth loudly. These people who, had the, who were impacted by it were coming to Paul and telling Paul about the conversion of these saints in Thessalonica and what it is that they have converted from and to. And what it was it that they said? They were telling them that they, they said they turned from idols to serve God. And that these saints now wait for His Son from heaven who is Jesus as He will deliver them from the wrath to come. Now remember, over these past couple of weeks we've said that the purpose of Paul writing this is to encourage the saints who are dealing with conflict. And Paul wants them to know that they can be secure and have assurance of salvation. And some of the reasons that we pointed out last week for their assurance of salvation was that these brothers received the Word. They received the Word. And remember, they received it in affliction. And not only did they receive it in affliction, but as they received it in affliction, they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And another way that they were, could be assured of their salvation, we were told, is that then they became examples for others. So they received the Word with the joy of the Spirit and became examples for others. And so Paul encourages them how, by telling them how he knows that they were saved in verses 4 and 5. Right? Last week he encouraged them by telling them how they ought to know and have assurance of salvation in verses 6 through 8. And now Paul will give them more encouragement by telling them how others are declaring to him how they know that they are saved. right? How they see the Thessalonians and how they have converted to Christ. And so that's a lot of encouragement that they are receiving. But it's a lot of needed encouragement as they are dealing with conflict and struggle. And yet the conversion of these Thessalonians has reverberated throughout all of the region so that Paul knows that they are saved and the neighboring cities know that they are saved. And so what should this teach us? Or what ought this tell us about what our own conversion ought to look like? It ought to be obvious to all. Our conversion ought to be obvious to all. That the the church would know that we are saved that our minister might know that we are saved, that our neighbors see us and know that we are saved, that our employer sees us and knows that we are Christians. Right? It is to be obvious to all. Yet the tragic thing is, when someone claims to have been converted, when someone claims to be a Christian, and yet you would never be able to know. When someone says, I'm a Christian, And you say to yourself, boy, I would have never have guessed. Right? What a sad and tragic thing that is. And we probably all know people like this. And the sad truth of the matter is, is they are probably not converted. Right? They're probably not converted. Because if you are converted, it should be evident. As Scripture teaches us, the drastic difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Right? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 as we look at this difference described by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 4. 
Look at verses 17 through 24. Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice, every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, brothers and sisters, the difference. One is darkened in their understanding while the other is taught of Christ. One is alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance within them. The other has been renewed in the spirit of their minds. One is greedy and callous and corrupt through their evil practices. And the others have put on the new self created after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do we see how major these differences are? Conversion isn't just something we say to people that we tell them but it is something that should be self-evident. Self-evident based upon God acting upon us. Are we really willing to say that God acts upon us in such a way that there is no difference prior to conversion as post-conversion? May it not be so. For if that's the case, perhaps you were converted, but you were not converted to the true and living God. For when God acts upon you, that change is irrefutable. Because that change is a change to your very core. It is a change to your will. It is a change to your affections. It is a change that these Thessalonians experienced. As others described to Paul, that the Thessalonians turn from idols to God. Right? They now serve this God and they wait for His Son from heaven. Right? The change was a turning, a waiting, a serving. This now describes Christian converts. And it is this serving, it is this turning, it is this waiting that we will look then at this morning. Right? So let us first look to turning. Now, brothers and sisters, one way in which we know that God exists and that every human being bears the image of God, is that no matter where we look in the world, whether we go to the most populated places in the world or the most remote places in the world, wherever people are, you will find people worshipping. And they'll be worshipping some kind of deity. Whether that's worshipping the sun and the moon and the stars, whether it's worshipping some sort of animal, like a sacred cow, whether it's worshipping something that has been handcrafted, or whether it's worshipping another person. Right? But we see this all over the world because worship is innate within man. 
We were created to be worshipful beings. And we know this. We know that there's a God out there. We know that we ought to worship this God. But the problem is, is we don't know who He is. We are ignorant of who the true God is. And this is the same problem that Paul ran into in Acts chapter 17. And so, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17. As we see, Paul described this very same problem to the Athenians. Acts 17. You guys are probably so sick of Acts 17. You've been, you've been reading it each and every week. I've been telling you. Go back and read it. So, look at Acts 17 and we'll start in verse 22. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man who He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom are Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul is walking and he sees these objects of worship that were made. These people even built an altar and inscribed on it, inscribed upon it to the unknown God. Right? And Paul seeks then to do the same thing to them that he did to the Thessalonians just some 20 verses prior that we read. He seeks to preach to them Christ. To tell them who the one true God is. This God who created all things. This God who does not live in temples made by hands. Nor is He served by human hands because this God is not dependent on you and I. He is not dependent on anything. For it is He who is the author and the giver of life to all of mankind. And so Paul tells them, don't think 
that God is something that you can fashion. Don't think that God is something that can be formed in your own imagination. You see, really what Paul is saying to them is that God is wholly other than you and I. God is wholly other than you and I. Right? We like to think of God in terms of being a bigger and better us. Right? Isn't that how people often think of God? As a bigger and better version of ourselves. But that is not true, brothers and sisters. God is not just quantitatively greater than you and I, but He is qualitatively greater than you and I. He is of a different order. We are created. We are made. We are creature. We are in need. He is Creator. He makes. He fashions. And He is in need of no one or nothing. Yet also this God that Paul tells them about is a living God. Is a living God. You see, idols are oftentimes fashioned, right? They're made by tools and crafted out of wood. They're dead, right? They're the opposite of a living God. They're dead. They could be destroyed just by tossing them into the fire. Right? They have no mind. They have no will. They have no affections. But the God that we serve is a living God, brothers and sisters. A living God. A God who is uncaused. A God who has life in and of Himself. And so He is immortal and eternal and self-existent and self-sufficient. You see the glaring difference between idols and the true and living God is that these idols that are made by man, they owe their existence to man. But the true and living God who has formed and fashioned everything on this earth owes man nothing. But rather we owe all of our existence to Him. That is the difference between the idol and the true and living God. And so everything that we receive, we receive from this living God. And it is because He lives that He can supply to us everything that we need. It is because He lives that He can sustain us and uphold this world as we are living in it. He is the source of every good thing we receive in this world. And it is because He is the living God. As Calvin said this, No drop will be found either of wisdom and light or of righteousness or power or rectitude or of genuine truth which does not flow from Him and of which He is not the cause. Right? And what a great comfort that should be to us, brothers and sisters. What a great comfort that should be to us. This is a God who has chosen us. And what ought to be our response to Him? Right? Our response to Him is we ought to turn to God. We ought to turn to God. For at one time, each and every one of us came into this world, born out of our mother's womb, with our backs to God, so to speak. Right? We were born hostile towards God, hating God, suppressing the truth and knowledge of God. Right? Wanting no part of Him. But now when the Word has come to us in power, in God's appointed time, like Lydia, He opens up our hearts to receive the Word and to turn to Him. 
right? So that we, like the Thess- like the Thessalonians, right, turn from idols to now serve the true and living God. And isn't it sad when we think about all the time that we wasted serving idols? Isn't it sad? What a waste of time it was. Worshipping idols. Worshipping money. Worshipping clothes. Worshipping sports. Maybe worshipping some other false god from one of the many world's religions. And yet, to think about how many today continue to reject Christ in preference for idols. And how sad that is. But what foolishness that is. But it is a foolishness that you and I had likewise at one time. It is a foolishness that Isaiah almost comically talks about as he talks about these pagan gods that these others that others worship. And so turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44 as we read what he has to say about these pagan deities fashioned by human hands. Isaiah 44. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 9 through 20. Isaiah 44, verse 9 through 20. Here's what he says. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do no profit. Their witness neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails him. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter, he stretches a line He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in his house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fighter and bakes bread. He makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm! I have seen the fire! And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For He has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it is burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coils. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? 
we see Isaiah mockingly say, these idols they create, they fashion them out of tools and shape them. They, parts of them they throw in the fire and they eat over them. And these same gods that they fashion are the ones that they then kneel down to and bow down before and actually offer a prayer to thinking that it might deliver them. What foolishness that is, right? And the world likewise, brothers and sisters, today is so foolish and deceived. Perhaps today is not wooden figurines or that they fashion any longer. Today perhaps it's, it's science. Perhaps it's the human intellect. Perhaps it's philosophy where man now thinks, this is all that I need. This gives me answers. This is truth. Right? But see, they worship no different than everyone else. They willingly bow the knee to what it is that they worship, whether that be science or philosophy or the human intellect. And although they bow the knee to this, esteeming it as true and honorable and right, one day they too will be made to bow the knee to Christ the Savior. Who Himself is truth. right? Who has revealed truth to us in His Word. And so I say, if you have not turned Today, let it be the day that you turn unto Christ. That you turn unto the one true God. That you turn from sin and death and destruction to eternal life found in Christ. Pray that God would grant to your eyes the ability to see. To turn away from these idols and to turn to the true and living God. Because it isn't just enough to turn from idols. It's not enough just to turn from idols unless you have turned to the one true and living God. And so likewise, you might ask God, as you grant me the ability to turn from these idols, that He likewise would grant you the ability to not only turn to Him, but to turn to Him so that you may serve Him. This is our second point of the day. Change is seen in the believer by not only turning from idols to the true and living God, but to now turning to Him and serving this God. You see, nowadays when people hear that we are called to serve God, they don't like that. It doesn't align with their, with their type of spirituality. right? People don't like to think that they're serving anyone. And these, these millennials today, right? this, this, uh, this damages their, their fragile self-esteem to hear that they have to serve anyone. Right? Rather, they, they think we're the ones who are supposed to be served. God should be serving us, not us serving God. Right? But we are all under the influence or the control of someone or something. And they fail to realize that. Right? We all serve someone or something. And so the question isn't, do you serve? But rather the question is, who do you serve? Or what do you serve? Because none of us are neutral. We don't come into this world neutral. And we all are slaves to sin. Perhaps we have different pet sins. right? Perhaps one sin, one person is attached to and another sin another is. But all of us at one time, we're all slaves and servants to sin and we served it happily. And Paul tells us why. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1-3, through he says this, 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul says that we served what we knew. We served what we knew according to our nature. Right? For we did not know the true and living God. But now being reconciled to God, having that relationship established by faith in Christ, as He bore there our wrath on the cross and shed His blood for our sins, brothers and sisters, guess what? We now know Him. And if you know this true and living God, you cannot help but to serve Him, can you? We already answered the question why. We serve Him because He is the only true and living God. He is the one who has brought us into existence. He is the one who has granted to us everything we need. And so the better question is, how do we serve Him? How do we serve Him? Well, we serve Him by obeying Him. We serve Him by obeying Him. Because we do not get to define what serving Him means. Because if we define what serving Him means, guess what? We would make serving Him a very minimal requirement. We would do the very least as lazy sinners. Or what we would do is we would say, well, how do I want to be served? And we would fashion our service to God in the manner in which we want. But remember, brothers and sisters, we are fallible. We are fallen creatures. God is the eternal, infallible God. His ways are not our ways. And so we serve Him through continual and unyielding faith in the face of pressure and persecution and suffering. Is this not what the Thessalonians in chapter 1 are are being praised for? Also, we serve God through imitation of Christ. Right? By imitating Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Or in Ephesians 5, verse 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. And so what Paul is essentially getting at is that we are to serve God with our whole entire being, body, mind, and soul, to be His instruments of righteousness here on earth. Yet also, brothers and sisters, we are to serve God with our mouth. Right? Paul tells us that we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That we are to be making melody to the Lord in our hearts, giving thanks to God in everything, and directing this thanksgiving to God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Can we say that we do this? Do we bless the Lord with our lips? Right? Do we daily give thanks to Him for all that He has given to us? These are ways that we serve God and we demonstrate a life transformed. Lastly, though, we serve Him 
by gathering together here in the Lord's Day corporately to worship God. This is the, the pinnacle. This is the apex of our service. Right? For as we read earlier in the giving of the law, God has given us six days to take care of all of our affairs, to go to work, to go shopping, to play sports, to go out to eat. And He says, on this one day, not just any day, but Sunday, this day, you are to gather and to read My Word aloud. And you are to proclaim My Word amongst the congregation. I wonder, do you think Paul or any other, any other of the disciples would have thought someone was truly converted if they would fail to gather in corporate worship with the saints on the Lord's Day? Do you think that they could have imagined one being converted and being a saint who would not gather with the saints on the Lord's Day? I don't think so. I don't think they would. We are called to serve God individually, yes. But we are also called to serve God corporately. And we are to serve Him according to His standards. We don't serve Him according to our own standards. Right? This characterizes one who has been truly converted. One who subjugates their will to the will of God. And serves Him in the manner in which God has called us to serve Him. Not in the way in which we want to serve Him. But this is not all that characterizes a convert. As he also says, as was true of the Thessalonians, that they were waiting from heaven, waiting for a son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, brothers and sisters, they waited. And waiting doesn't mean that they sat there and they, they twiddled their thumbs. Right? What is it that we do when we wait for someone? When we await someone's arrival, what do we do? We clean up, right? We mop, we sweep, we dust. Maybe we stick stuff underneath the couch so no one can see it or something like that. We prepare the table. We prepare food, right? And so likewise, this is what we are called to do as we await the return of our Lord, right? We are to prepare and ready ourselves for His arrival. Not just be sitting around idly waiting for Him. But likewise, what also do we do as we await the arrival of a guest? Right? We're anxious for the guest, right? We're looking forward to it, yet with patience. Can we say that we are looking forward to the arrival of our Savior? Or do we dread it? Do we look forward to His arrival, or do we dread it? I think, unfortunately... For many Christians, it's the latter. They dread it. They don't look forward to it. Right? They say, Lord, I'm having too much fun here on earth to want to be in heaven right now. Right? Take as long as you need. Take as long as you need. But this is not how we should be thinking as believers, should it? This is not how Paul thought. He said, I desire to depart and be with the Lord. This is not the way the Thessalonians thought as we will read later in chapter 5, as they are anticipating His arrival. And this is the same way we should think. Brothers and sisters, it should be the the unbeliever who wants God to tarry and wait. It should be them who want Him to take as long as He can, not us. For when Christ returns, He will return for you and I as deliverer, as rescuer, as Savior, as Redeemer, as Paul says in verse 10. 
He's coming to deliver us. How can we not long to be delivered from this sin-cursed world and these sin-stained bodies if we are truly saints? But for the unbeliever, when Christ returns, He is not coming as Savior and Redeemer and Deliverer, but rather He is coming as Judge. This is what Paul described to the people in Athens in Acts 17. He said, A day is fixed in which Christ will come and He will judge the world in righteousness. And so all who have not turned to Christ, all who do not serve Christ, all who are not waiting for His Son's arrival, will be judged according to God's holy and righteous standard. For they have rejected the Messiah. They have rejected and denied the resurrection of Christ. They have denied the very thing that we find our hope in, isn't it? Our hope is grounded in the resurrection of Christ. It is because Christ rose that we are assured that when He returns, He will raise us to everlasting life. But what this also should teach us is that the only way out, the only escape, is through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. And this is the point that Paul pointed the Thessalonians to. right? As As an encouragement to them. And it should be an encouragement to us. For we would be overwhelmed here on earth. We would be overwhelmed by sin and temptation and all of our struggles. We surely would give in to it all if we did not have assurance that Christ was going to return and that our, and our hope would be fulfilled that we would one day be in heaven with our Lord and Savior. Right? This is what sustains us. This is what causes us to persevere. This is what causes us not to give in to sin. That hope that we have. That others do not have. Right? And so, brothers and sisters, do these things that I've described today detail your conversion story? Right? Have have you turned from idols to the one true God? Do you serve now this one true God? And do you wait for His Son from heaven to deliver you from the wrath to come? Right? You see, this is the true beauty of the God we serve. That in being life in and of Himself, and not being dependent on you and I, He is able to save us to the uttermost. Because the gospel that was proclaimed to you and I and the gospel that is proclaimed to the ends of the earth does not depend on you and I. And thank God that it doesn't. Because we surely would fail. But rather, it depends on the self-existent and the self-sufficient one true God of all the world. It is this God who is not fashioned, but rather who does the fashioning This God who gives us, grants us faith in Christ, who gives us His Holy Spirit, who gives us new inclinations, new desires, new affections, right? who causes us to be renewed in the image of His Son, who sustains us and upholds us for the time when Christ returns. Right? It is He who the Gospel is dependent on, not you and I. Right? This is the good news. This is the good news. We need Him. He doesn't need us. And He is forever faithful. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that You would make us holy as You are holy. 
that You would make us pure as Christ is pure. That You would make us perfect as Your Spirit is perfect. For Father, we so often neglect to serve You as we ought. We neglect to wait for Your Son as You have called us to. And so, Father, we pray that You would establish us more and more in the faith each and every day. That You would grant us the ability to turn unto You if we have not thus far. That You would grant us the desire to serve You in the way in which You have called us to. And you, that You would grant us that assurance of faith, that assurance of and certainty of that hope that when Christ returns, we will be delivered from the wrath to come. That You would give us that peace of mind, that peace of conscience, that peace that we are right before God. And Father, we pray that You would apply all that You have taught us this day to our minds and our hearts that we may live it throughout this week and each and every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.